Hi friends and welcome back to Docs Talk Story, where we share the journeys, accomplishments, typical day and advice of doctors practicing here in Hawaii. We hope Docs Talk Story can be a source of inspiration for you listeners and also help you guys as students navigate the wide range of specialties the medical field has to offer. My name is Riley and I'm going to be your host for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. On today's episode, we have Dr. Lisa Wong, an endocrinologist in solo private practice. Dr. Wong attended Jabson for medical school, Georgetown University for residency, and also completed her fellowship there at Georgetown in endocrinology and metabolism. Good morning, Dr. Wong, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Well, it's nice to be here. Alrighty, so just to start off, can you tell us a little bit about your journey? Um, maybe how, when, and why did you choose to go into endocrinology? Okay, so it begins with my father. He started in 1979 um, here in Hawaii as an endocrinologist. So when I started medical school, I was interested in primary care. So I wanted mm-hmm. to do internal medicine. And he wanted me to do endocrinology. <laughs> he was in private practice, um, but I told him I wanted to do internal medicine. So I attended Jabsom here for medical school. And then I went to Georgetown for my internal medicine residency. And I remember I was on call one day in the hospital, and one of the upper-level residents was surprised that I was going into internal medicine when my father was an endocrinologist in Hawaii. He said, why are you not doing endocrinology? So he he thought it it, it didn't make any sense that I didn't explore that. So I actually met with an endocrinologist at Georgetown Mm -hmm. and asked her what she liked about it. And she liked being an expert in her field. Um, And I think that's where it all began. But I, I am so glad I chose it. It's, it suits me very well. Um, I think it's good for someone who wants to have a relationship with their patients Mm. because a lot of chronic diseases and it's outpatient, which I like. Um, and so I did my fellowship there, and I, I loved it. It's very cerebral in the sense that there's a lot of problem-solving and um, diagnostic dilemmas. So all of that just fit me really well. So I think that's that's how I ended up in endocrinology. Nice. So what kind of uh, drew you to internal medicine in the first place? You know, when I decided I wanted to be a doctor, I wanted to be that Marcus Welby doctor. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to be the doctor who took care of the whole person and just was a family doctor. So that was sort of my idea of what a doctor was. Mm. So I think that's why I wanted to do primary care and internal medicine. I would not go with kids, so, <laughs> so I just wanted to do adults. <laughs> yeah. Did you consider any other uh, specialties within internal medicine along the way? No, no, not really. It's good. Yeah. Nice and easy. <laughs> um, so within endocrinology, are there options to further subspecialize? You could do, on the, you know, on the mainland, you could do, um, some people do reproductive endocrinology. Mm-hmm. There are people that are just thyroidologists. Oh, wow. They only do thyroid disease. <laughs> but I think in Hawaii, you'd, you'd be a general generalist. So. so as far as the training pathway, it's just three years of internal medicine residency and then... How many years of fellowship? It's usually two or three years. So okay. I did two years. Okay. Um, 
How competitive is endocrinology as a specialty? I don't think it's competitive. Of course, I knew I went. I stayed at Georgetown, so they they knew me, and they, you know, I I don't feel that it's a competitive field. I think they're not enough. They're not enough endocrinologists, and so um, we want we want more people to to train in that field. Yeah. What kind of characteristics do you think are important to a person being a good endocrinologist? I think you have to like people because you're seeing the same patient, you know, with a diabetic every three months. Right. And so you have to be a people person. Um, you have to be, I think you have to be patient because, you know, it's not like you're in the emergency room and you see the patient once and right. you're done. You know, you, you're you're with that person throughout their ups and downs. And um, so if you like, if you like the relationship, and I like it. I've, I have patients I've known for 20 years and it's, it's fun, you know. So. Yeah, so I guess going off of that, what kind of does your typical day look like practicing? Well, now nothing's typical, but, oh, that's um, true. <laughs> but in general, I, I have not done hospital since I started out. I joined my father's practice, so um, initially I was making hospital rounds. And then I had kids, and I couldn't, I couldn't keep up with all that. Right. So I haven't done hospital, you know, for almost 20 years. And um, so I'm just in my own I'm, – I'm in solo private practice. So um, I have a lot of autonomy, and I um, am in my office seeing patients, um, now all outpatients, and uh, follow-ups and new, new consults. So it's – it's very pleasant, actually. <laughs> um, do you get a lot of new consults, or do you see most of your patients are follow-ups like throughout the day? Well, you know, I changed my practice two years ago. So prior to that, I would see about two consults a day, and the rest were follow-ups. Mm-hmm. But now, I don't see as many um, consults now. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so what do you think the best part of your job is as an endocrinologist? The best part is, is knowing knowing the patients. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, after a while, it's almost like seeing a friend because, right. you know, they you get to know their family and their job situation. Um, and then usually you can help them improve their health. I mean, with, with thyroid, it's very, um, you have a lot of job satisfaction because they're extremely hyperthyroid and then you get them feeling better. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of adrenal insufficiency. You can get someone who's feeling weak and almost um, just so so tired, and, mm-hmm. and get them back to their usual. So that's um, that's gratifying. Um, and then it's such a it's it's a field where um, for the diabetics, there's a lot of um, interest in new medication. So mm-hmm. that's been fun. So when I first started. The GLP ones were just being introduced for um, diabetes, so it was it it was just fun to have a lot of new therapies, and it's kind of fun to offer patients new. What it's such a chronic disease that's kind of tough to stay motivated, so that that keeps them engaged. So I like that too. Yeah, I imagine that's what makes managing chronic disease so difficult. 
Um, so I know you mentioned the GLP-1 agonist. Do you think you can talk a little bit more about the progression of um, diabetes drugs and how they've kind of evolved um, with your career? Because diabetes is so prevalent and because it's increasing, the drug companies are putting a lot of money into new drug development. So, for instance, before 1995, there were only two drugs for diabetes, which were sulfonylureas and insulin. Mm. And then 1995, metformin was introduced. And there was nothing until, uh, you know, 20 years ago. And then there was an explosion of different medications. So, um, and it was almost dizzying for the, especially yeah. for the primary care doctors to keep straight. And there were, there were the um, thiazolidine dions and then the GLP-1 agonists and then then you had the DPP-4s and the SGLT2 inhibitors, and it just became, and all these different insulin, basal and bolus. And so, um, so yeah, it's totally changed. In fact, my mother used to work in my father's office. Oh. And now, if I try to get her to sub in, <laughs> she's intimidated because there's so oh. many different medications. <laughs> I definitely feel your mom's pain. We were learning about all the drugs, and there's so many. So many drugs crazy. for diabetes. Yeah. Too many. <laughs> How do, so I guess, how do you, like, navigate that? How do you, I don't know, decide which ones you want to, like, try or, you know, prescribe a patient? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I think I try to keep abreast of the guidelines mm -hmm. um, and, this, you know, the data, the evidence. Um, but, you know, it does, I, in the back of my mind, I'm like, you know, these patients just need to change their lifestyle. I'm not all of them. But, you know, really the burden of, of the medic, you know, medications, some of them are in so many medications. Mm -hmm. um, I think if, if we had more time to spend on um, lifestyle modification, we wouldn't be having to give so many medications. But that's a good question. I mean, a lot of it is, um, for me, it's what's best for that patient. You individualize mm -hmm. it for what is going to work for that patient, that patient's work situation, their, what's going to be affordable for them, what they're going to be compliant with. Mm -hmm. And then, um, of course, there are other comorbidities and what's safe for them. Um, but sometimes I, we're just trying things. Mm -hmm. Let's try this, you know, and see how it works. Yeah. Let's try that. Oh, that didn't work, so we, we switch. But, um, yeah, that's a good question, too. So you kind of talked about the explosion of drugs that kind of came um, a little bit before this. Is there any f changes that you see coming in the future? Is that drug development still kind of going? There, Yeah, there, there still are more medications. I, lately, it seems like there's more in the way of lipid management, mm -hmm. new, new drugs that I've seen. But I think one of the coolest things that patients are using now is something called continuous glucose mm -hmm. monitoring. So I can just leave the patient's medication regimen alone and then just give them the continuous glucose monitoring. So that's just a little sensor mm -hmm. that's subcutaneous. And they, by them seeing how their glucose level is affected by diet and exercise, they change their behavior. Mm. And then you see their A1C improve. So that's very gratifying. So that's kind of, that's really a game changer. That is so exciting to hear that. Those continuous glucose monitors are not only beneficial to get those like consistent um, glucose readings, but also to serve as encouragement um, for the patients as well. So we talked about the best part. Can you mention what the worst part of being an endocrinologist is for you? 
the worst part. Oh. I mean, at the same time, it's very challenging. The, the diabetic patient is very challenging because, um, you know, you've got to keep them motivated. Right. And there's a lot of stressors in people's lives that keep them from their goals. So um, I think the, the most challenging part is just not um, only uh, relevant to an endocrinologist, but all of medicine now is just the complexity of right. our the United States healthcare mm-hmm. system and how there is layers of bureaucracy and there's a lot of regulation. There's the health insurance and then there's this third party and the pharmacies and it's just so many mm-hmm. different. Um, sometimes the patient get gets lost, mm-hmm. so that's frustrating and. The time, the time spent on other things besides patient care. I'm sure you've heard that. So it sounds like a lot of longitudinal care is about um, keeping up that motivation. Um, and at the end of the day, the patient has to want the change as much as you as a doctor want it as well. And I think we can all attest to the fact that motivation is hard to keep up consistently. So what are some of your strategies that you use with your patients to keep them motivated? Yeah, that's. I mean, I feel like the behavioral piece is is huge so I try to find out what they care about you know Mm. because sometimes you know it's it's another family member I think you know trying to find out what 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 the big picture goal is Mm -hmm. to identify that and uh, articulate it and then um, I think also to give them a lot for this is my style to give them a lot of grace because people are really hard on themselves Mm -hmm. and um, sometimes just letting them not beat themselves up and know that this is just a natural process of, you know, this is the natural progression of, of type 2 diabetes. You're going to get beta cell exhaustion and mm-hmm. insulin secretion is going to fail and it's not all your fault. <laughs> sometimes that helps people um, get out of that guilt. And, and so, yeah, there's a lot of psychology to mm-hmm. <laughs> involved. So, yeah. Yeah, so... I think you mentioned that you went into endocrinology because you like kind of that continuous longitudinal care. Um, do you have any patients that maybe aren't longitudinal that you might just see maybe like once or twice? So a lot of my thyroid patients would be once a year. Um, they're the easy patients, you know, a lot of hypothyroid patients. Mm-hmm. They're just on thyroid hormone replacement. And, um, that's real simple. I do have folks that are, like I see for hypopituitarism, so mm-hmm. they're on a lot of different hormone replacement, and then they would be more long-term. Um, and then I've got people with osteoporosis that are still more long-term. So unless the primary care doctor wants to take over, um, then, then many of my patients continue to see me um, long-term. But I would say that in general, the thyroid patients I can see once a year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Thyroid cancer... If they're in, if it's they're far out enough where there's no um, evidence of recurrence, then mm. they, they don't need to come that often either. Do you have a favorite type of patient you like to see? Well, I love being able to help the patient get better. So mm-hmm. whoever you know, and that could be anyone, right? You know, depending on the situation. And then, um, no, they're all fun. You know, the local people. <laughs> True. <laughs> funny, so. Um, and everybody has a certain, um, sometimes you just have to figure them out <laughs> what it is. But. What's the most common diagnosis that you see? 
the diabetes. So some of my patients, they come to me for thyroid mm-hmm. or, you know, adrenal, and then they develop diabetes. Mm-hmm. And then they want to be seen for diabetes as well. So I think the diabetes and obesity, and then they've all got hypertension, hyperlipidemia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So Fair. that's a huge, yeah, that's really common. So what are some of the benefits and challenges of private practice for you? You know, I actually considered working for Kaiser. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so And so I did weigh the, um, the pros and cons. Right. So I think because I've been in private practice so long, I just like that autonomy. I love mm-hmm. being my own boss. If I want to take off time, I can do that when I want. I don't have to ask anyone. So I love that. Um, but on, on the same, on the same, the other side of the coin is that I still, am, yeah, the buck stops here. So, so I'm responsible, um, you know, to make sure all my I's are dotted and my T's are crossed. So, so that's the hard part. I think um, now, I think the, the environment now makes it harder to run a private practice. Um, because so much, there's so much more documentation required, mm-hmm. and um, just to keep up, the government keeps changing <laughs> the the what you know the requirements are. So just to keep on top of that is is tough. I mean, I've been blessed with two staff that have been with me from 2002, so they're just really great and they make my life great. But mm-hmm. I think if you had trouble with staffing, it mm-hmm. could be difficult. Um, that could be another challenge. Um, I haven't had trouble, like I think for certain fields you might have to be marketing, but mm-hmm. I haven't, I mean, because endocrine is in such demand, there, you really have no dearth of patients. Oh. And I think that's true for a lot of specialties now. Um, yeah. So you talked about autonomy as one of the benefits and things that you like about private practice. And I think that flows really nicely into a conversation about work-life balance. Um, do you have a lot of time outside your practice to kind of do things that you like and hang out with your family? Yes. I mean, I think that's endocrinology definitely lends to that. So uh, being a mom, I can and then having a private practice, that's been nice over the years to be able to block out time, mm-hmm. you know, and take off to go to the kids event. So that that's been I've had that flexibility Um and I've kind of made it a point to to prioritize my family. So mm-hmm. I've been able to spend time with them. So that that I really like. Um, and I think that's, in general, folks are looking for that now. So mm-hmm. I think, I think more, more and more that would be accommodated for. Do you think that having a private practice, like, lends better to having a family? When I started out, that was 2002, I think... In that setting and context, the private practice, there were a lot of advantages. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, because of all the regulations, I think private practice, especially solo private practice, which is quite common in Hawaii, is going to be less and less um, common. But if you have that entrepreneurial you know, spirit and you, you, know, you want to go for it, I think, you know, patients... A lot of my patients don't want to be in a Kaiser setting. You know, hmm. they, they don't want to be, they want to see the same doctor every time. Right. And they don't want to be waiting through, you know, layers before they see, or they just, they don't want to see a nurse practitioner. I'm just, 
I'm not saying right or wrong, but but I, there is, if you really wanted that, you could. I'm sure you could find, um, you know, a niche for that. So, did you have any like business background going into private practice? No, I always tell my kids they should get an MBA <laughs> because <laughs> because I feel like that was lacking, right. and I was sort of just figuring it out. I I mean, I'm lucky because I just stepped into my father's practice and uh-huh. was already running well. So I just sort of copied. You know, I just went along. But he, like, he had, he was running some of his own labs in-house. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to look at the cost-benefit of that. And I actually stopped running labs except for A1C in my office. And then the billing was uh, was sort of DOS-based, outdated <laughs> program that I had to switch. And then and then sw- converting us to electronic medical records, like, you know all that. Um, yeah, I wish I I wish I had more business background because you're yeah you're running a business and I never I never had any interest in that <laughs> um, and and very little knowledge about that. So I think those skills are useful, and I, I wish I had more training in that. Mm-hmm. So you would recommend that someone pursue like an MBA or something if they were some, interested yeah, in starting some, private practice? Some kind of I. You know, I always, I tell my kids MBA, I don't know if they, you need, you don't need an MBA mm-hmm. to start a private mm-hmm. practice, but, um, but I think, I mean, there are courses, I think, even for, for private practice docs. Hmm. I see. Yeah. Thank you for your input on that. I think even though um, the trend might be um, private practice becoming less common, I think it's still important to talk about here, just in case there are some listeners who might still be interested in starting their own practice. Uh, so just to switch gears a little, we talk a lot about burnout here at Jobsum and just in the medical community in general. Um, have you ever experienced burnout and have you developed any techniques um, or tips that you can share to counteract burnout? It is a consuming field in a sense. I mean, you feel a lot of obligation toward your patient and then, you know, you everyone wants to take care of patients and that's the fun part and everyone loves that. But then there, there are all the other administrative side and business mm-hmm. side that you know I did not feel very prepared for right so um, burnout I mean physicians tend to um, not take care of ourselves you know because you're always giving to your patients and so yeah it's, a, it's something you have to be very intentional about mm-hmm. you know taking time for yourself to exercise or even to eat lunch you know mm-hmm. sometimes you're just eating through through your day and um, and I think just more and more is required of the physician now with all the um, like the I would say the primary uh, the private practice docs in Hawaii now really if you don't have electronic medical record it's really difficult so the you know the, the previous generation on paper charts um, trying to get onto electronic medical records was was a big source of burnout I think. Mm-hmm. Um, just to convert everything um, and and become more of like a scribe because, you know, like, we you just not have to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, so that I think just trying to delegate, learning how to delegate things and not take it all on your own shoulders is mm-hmm. important. Yeah, I think even as a student sometimes, uh, being okay with resting can be so hard. There's always something else to do, and I imagine that's even harder as a physician um, when you have the actual responsibility of caring for patients and things like that. So yeah, thank you for that reminder that we have to have to be intentional about um, resting and taking care of ourselves. 
So what would you say to a student interested or maybe considering endocrinology now um, after our conversation? Let's see. Well, I mean, I love it. I, I would encourage more people to, to consider it. I think, I think folks, you know, the compensation is not that great. So maybe that's why it's not as popular. But there's a huge need in Hawaii. I think in the community, there may be about 10 of us. And then, but that's not counting like Kaiser and the VA. So, um, I mean, our, really, we need more specialists. We're trying to equip the primary care to mm-hmm. care for um, these problems that really overlap with primary care. But, um, I mean, it's, it's if you like working with, if you like having that long-term relationship mm-hmm. with patients, I think it is gratifying. And, um, yeah, and, and I think you always have a job. It's very, it's in demand. So that's another... Uh, plus. So what do you know now that you wish you knew um, like earlier in your training? I mean, one thing that strikes me is what a privileged position you're in, even as a medical student. Mm. So, I mean, you get the inside scoops on people's very intimate, you know, private, personal moments that they're probably not going to mm-hmm. share with just anyone. Mm. And And so I guess just take every every moment as a teaching moment and take every opportunity. So, I mean, I think you're, you know, as a student, I was very concerned about uh, making the grade, of course, you know, and making an impression, but, but just knowing, yeah, what a privilege is. I mean, really you're, you're fortunate to be in that special place where you can um, connect with a person that, Mm -hmm. that in that close, close way and, um, and make a difference. So, yeah, I don't, I think um, I think it's it's a it's a great field to be in. Yeah, it is such a joy and a privilege to have the platform that we have to form these really genuine relationships with our patients. And I think it's really easy to forget that sometimes. Well, uh, that wraps it up for us. Thank you so much, Dr. Wong, for coming today and sharing your story, and also just for the way you serve Hawaii's community. You're welcome. Thanks, Ray. And thank you guys for tuning in to Doc's Talk Story today. Join us next time as we continue to journey through the stories of different specialists. And don't forget to head on over to our website to give us your feedback and input on who you'd like to hear from next.